There are some things in life that are not what they seem. It may seem good. It may seem perfect. It may seem like it's the best way. But that's man's doing. That's man doing things his way. But the fact that this verse clearly describes what defines a man's destiny. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. The word death is ruin or destruction. Now, let me just look at this verse here. In the statement in verse 12 where it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, that statement gives the appearance or the idea that something is correct. That their ways not only seem right, but the correct way. Now, in this world, we know that there are many types of religion. There is Mormonism, there is Hinduism, there is Buddhism, just to name a few. But to them, it seems right. There are many atheists who, who, claim, who don't claim the existence of God, who don't believe that God exists. But their ways seem right. Same with many philosophers and the humanists and the communists and the socialists. Their methods, their ways, their ideology, to them, seem right. But the scripture says in verse 12 of Proverbs 14 that the end thereof is ruin or destruction. Go to Proverbs chapter 21. Let's continue to look at man's ways. One of the reasons why man is lost is found in Isaiah 53 verse 6 where it says, all of us are like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's why the world is so lost. In Proverbs 21 and verse 2, listen to what it says. Every way of a man's Every way of a man is right in his own what? Eyes. To him, his view is that he is right in all of his ways. But the Lord weighs the hearts. In other words, the Lord is the one that determines who's right or who's wrong because God knows what a man's heart is. He's the one that determines whether you're wrong or right, regardless of what you think and regardless of what I think. Now, go to Jeremiah chapter 10. I hope you don't mind going through the scriptures tonight. That's why we call it Bible study. Jeremiah chapter 10. We're looking at man's ways. You know, the world offers many different ways to choose from. But the ways that the world offers is always the ways that sort of turns us away from God. And it's unfortunate that many believers have chosen some of these ways and found themselves drawn away from God rather than to God. Now, the danger of that is not only what they choose or the way they choose. The danger here, and I'll pay very close attention here, the danger is not in the way they choose, but the danger is the fact that they feel right in their own eyes of the choices that they've made. So a person can go on in life thinking that they're right when they're really wrong, but the end thereof for them is ruin and destruction. Understand that every false way is a substitute for God's ways. So Jeremiah chapter 10, listen to what Jeremiah says in verse 23. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Let me read that to you from the Amplified Version. 
It says, O Lord, please Jeremiah in the name of the people. I know that the determination of or the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man, even in a strong man or in a man at his best to direct his own steps. In other words, man was not destined to know his ways. How could he when his ways are imperfect, fallible, subject to sin, subject to failure? Even Adam, when he was created, the Bible says that he was created after his own image and likeness. And he bore the very nature and characteristics of God. But yet even Adam needed instructions on the right way. When God placed him in the garden, he says, of all the trees that we have here, you can eat, but you cannot eat on this tree. And not only did he tell him which tree to eat, which tree not to eat, but he also told him what the consequences would be if he ate of the tree that he was not supposed to eat. So even Adam needed instruction. Why? Because without God or apart from God, he is nothing. Man was created to be dependent of God, not to be independent from God. Amen. Amen. I like what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3 when he talked about what our condition was before Christ. And I'll just read that. You don't need to turn there. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. He goes on to say that, In which you once walked according to the course or according to the ways of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That pretty much tells you man's condition and man's ways, and how much he needed God in his life. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says this, Man's steps are ordered by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? So are you getting what I'm saying here? Man's ways are messed up. <laughs> that's pretty much what it's saying here. But there's only one way, and that's God's way, which is the best way and which is the only way. Jesus says in John 15 and verse 5, that apart from me you can do nothing, but if you abide in me and I in you, if we stay connected, if we stay joined together, then you will bring forth much fruit. You will grow, you will develop, you will advance. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We need God's ways. I said we need God's ways. I thank God for the Holy Ghost who have been given to us to lead us and guide us in the way that we should go and show us things to come according to the Bible. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. He keeps us straight, he keeps us where we need to go. Now, let me give you some examples in the Bible of, of, of man's ways. Go to Numbers chapter 20. When we choose to seek our own way, we never get what we want. We never find what we're looking for. But we always pay a terrible price when we seek our own way above God's ways. Numbers chapter 20. Here's a story about Moses as he was leading his people through the wilderness. And you know the story, these people were constantly complaining and it was sort of wearing on Moses' nerves and Moses was just about had enough with these people. 
And um, in this case, Moses led them to a place where there was supposed to be water, but the, by the time they got there, the water was dried out. Now the people really got upset and really got on Moses' nerves and began to complain. They began to question his leadership. They began to question God's purpose. They began to wonder, why did God deliver us out of Egypt? We were better off there. At least we had water, at least three square meals a day. And so we pick up in verse 7, when he goes to God and pray and asks for advice, God begins to give him some advice in verse 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod and gather the assembly together, you and Aaron, and speak to the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so shalt thou give the congregation and their beasts to drink. Now, God gave Moses very specific instructions. He said, gather up all the people, and I want you to stand before the rock, and I want them to see this miracle. Then I want you to speak to the rock so that water can flow from out of this rock. And I want the people to see this. Verse 9 says, And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together, just as God instructed, before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear me now, you rebels, which is an indication how ticked off Moses was with these people. He was already fed. I mean, he called them rebels. Must we fetch water out of this rock for you? And in verse 11, Moses lifted up his hands, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beast also. Now, here's where Moses went wrong. God specifically told him to speak to the rock. That was God's way. Moses caught up in the emotion for, or for whatever reason, decided to do it his way and struck the rock, the rock twice with the rod. Now, even though water still gushed out of there, and I believe that was God's mercy and grace for the people's sake, but Moses decided to do it his way, and even though his way was still effective, he had to pay a price. Look at what he says in verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron and says, Because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of, of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death and ruin. Moses did some great and mighty things, but because it's one thing, he decided to do it his way rather than God's way. God says, speak to the rock. He struck the rock, not once but twice. And so, again, this is a good example of how it's important to do things God's way. Even though it may not seem to make any sense to us, even though it may seem illogical to us, even though it may seem like it just doesn't make common sense, if you know it's God's way, just do it God's way. Amen. There's always a price to pay when we choose our way over God's way. Let's look at another example. Go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Here we have a story of Naaman, who was a Gentile, and he was a commander of the Syrian army. He's a very well-renowned soldier, a mighty warrior. <coughs> people respected him. People admired him. People loved him. He did some great things won some great battles and everything. He accomplished much, and he was very well, uh, well, well renowned. 
the problem with him was he had the disease of leprosy. Now, I don't know how he was able to perform and carry out all the things that he had done with this disease. But then he heard that there was a prophet in Samaria that can heal his leprosy. And so when he got word of that, he went before his king and asked permission to see this man called Elisha, the prophet. And we pick up here in verse 9. It says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and his old entourage and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. In verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Now, verse 11 says, But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And so he turned and went away in a rage. And look at verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So in verse 14 says, so Naaman went down, humbled himself, and dipped in the water seven times in the Jordan, and according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, let me turn your attention to verse 11. There are two words here that almost kept Naaman from receiving his healing. Let's go to verse 11. First he said in, in verse 10, Elisha sent the messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you and will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away. And behold, here's the two words, I thought. I thought that he was going to come down and meet with me personally and pray this mighty powerful prayer, this wonderful spiritual prayer, and then wave his hand and say abracadabra and then heal my disease. The problem with Naaman was that he came to Elisha with a preconceived idea of how he was going to get healed. How many times have we missed God when we went before him asking for provision, asking for promotion, asking for a job, asking for a spouse, with a preconceived idea as to how God's going to do it, when God is going to do it, and by whom God is going to do it through? Who are we to decide when God is going to do things? how God is going to do things, and by whom God is going to choose to do it through. His ways are much higher than our ways. His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. Thank God for his servants that talk some sense into him and say, listen, what difference does it make how you get healed? And it's interesting because he expected Elijah to meet him personally. And Elijah just says, well, he wants healing, this is the way to do it. And he sent his messenger down and just say, just go jump in the lake seven times and you're all set. Doesn't seem spiritual, doesn't seem unconventional. There was no prayer involved. But Naaman expected prayer, expected something spiritual, expected something great and fantastic and didn't get it. And because of that, he came close to not receiving his healing. We need to be careful trying to come to God with preconceived ideas as to how God should answer our prayers. Be very careful with that. God's ways is not our way. 
Jesus healed people in an unconventional way. In John chapter 9, he ran into a, a blind man, and the blind man was seeking to see. He was seeking healing. And Jesus didn't pray for him, didn't lay hands on him, didn't gather up his disciples to lay hands on him and pray, didn't bring him to the synagogue, didn't have a Bible beat up against his head. But it was a very unconventional way. For some of us, we may think it's kind of a yucky way of doing it. But Jesus' method was to simply spit on the dirt, mix the dirt with some saliva, make it clay, and then use it to anoint his eyes and then told him to go and wash and he'll be, and he'll see. And the, the blind man did exactly as Jesus instructed and he came back seeing. Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes God's ways are unconventional. That's why we have such a hard time understanding his ways. But it doesn't matter how much it doesn't make sense to us. God's ways is the best way, and he always brings about astonishing and amazing results. Amen? So you may not understand it. See, listen, what we need to do is we need to stay open and let God be God. We need to allow him to work his ways the way he knows how to do it because he's been doing it for years. And so therefore, we just need to just learn to trust him and let God be God. Because when we do that, we, when we allow God to do it his way, regardless of whether it makes sense, regardless of whether it's unconventional, unorthodox, or whatever it is, if we let God be God, then God will open doors that no man can shut. Then God can cause your dreams to come to pass. Then God will be able to make a way where there is no way. Then God will be able to help you defeat your enemies and overcome whatever temptations may come your way. Just let God do it his way. His way is best. Now, in order for us to acknowledge God's ways, in order for us to get on board with God's ways, it's going to require trust. Go to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. You know, life is like a road that are, is like a road that are full of twists and turns and very hard to navigate. We're on the road, sometimes we can't see what's coming around the corner. And that's what makes it so hard to live life and to walk in this road, what we call life. But when we look at this road, like so many believers that are stranded alongside of the road, like vehicles that are stalled and can't go any further and can't reach their destination, that's like so many believers who tend to do things their way or choose to go their way. But there are two reasons why we, there are so many believers that find themselves stuck off the side of the road, stalled, and can't go any further. One of those ways, as we talked about earlier, is because to them it seems right in their own eyes. The second reason, and very important to hear this, is that there are many believers who believe in a God that they just don't trust. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. 
Now, it's interesting because as believers, we affirm the existence of God. And we affirm the work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. But there's a disconnect, uh, a disconnection with our faith in Christ and trusting him to navigate our lives. Something's wrong. And the reason for that is because we don't trust his ways. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 simply says this, Trust in the Lord with what? All of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. It says, In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Let me say that again. He starts our base by saying, Trust in the Lord, how? With all of your heart. Then he says this, lean not to your own understanding or your own ways or your own wisdom or your own knowledge, but rather in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Now, when we trust his ways, when we submit to his ways, God will make things happen. You just got to believe that. Do you, rather, do you want to trust God who knows how to get to the finish line? Or would you rather trust your ways or somebody else's way who may not even know how to get to the finish line? When we talk about trust, the word trust is, is a very interesting word. It means to lay down on. It carries the idea of putting one's complete weight on something. Now, every one of you here today are putting your weight, your complete weight on something. Everyone in here are all trusting completely in the same thing, and it's not God. It's the chairs that you're sitting on right now. You have complete trust in the ability of that chair to hold you up. So therefore, you put all of your complete weight on that chair without even thinking that that chair is going to buckle. Why? Because you trust it. And the reason why I know that is because I don't see anyone standing because they're concerned about their chair holding them up. Every one of you are sitting on that chair because you believe that that chair is going to hold you up. You know that you can lay your very weight on that chair because you have confidence in the ability of that chair to hold you up. That's what it means to trust in the Lord. To lay your complete weight on him. To lean heavily on him. That's what it means to trust in the Lord. So, okay, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, one of the things that Christians do that get them in trouble is the order of how they handle things. Because whenever they face a problem, what they do is they'll lean to their understanding first. And when that doesn't work, then they go to God. Proverbs 3 and verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. But what we do is we do things the opposite way. And see, that's how we know we trust, we don't trust God. How do we know that we don't trust God? By the thing that we go to first in dealing with our problems. What is your source? Who do you go to first? What do you go to first to deal with the problems that you face? And that's where many Christians fail because they go to other sources rather than to the source. 
Understand that human understanding is flawed. It's imperfect. We can't depend on our ways. Therefore, our ways become questionable because they're so imperfect. So it's easier to just trust in God's way rather than our own. Don't you, don't you think? So, Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, Man's steps are ordered by the Lord. How then can a man understand his ways? It is not in man to know or direct his path. He has no idea what he wants to do, where he wants to go. He has no idea how to order his steps, even though he may think he does. But the end thereof is death. Now, does that mean that God doesn't want us to use our brains? Does it mean that God doesn't want us to use our intellect, which he's given to us? Does it mean that God doesn't allow us to use our common sense or, 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 or our logic? No. God wants us to use the intellect because that's what he's given us. God wants us to use our brains. God wants us to use our common sense and our logic, but under his supervision. God never meant for us to use our logic and our brains and our common sense apart from him, but under his supervision because he knows the best way. So, go with me to Luke chapter 5 as I get ready to close. As I mentioned to you before, God's ways always brings results. And if we learn to trust him, we get to see him actively working things out in our lives the way he does best. And again, sometimes God's ways are, are, are as he said, it's much higher than our ways. And God's ways can be sometimes to us illogical, doesn't make any sense, doesn't seem conventional, and it's unorthodox. But regardless of whether it makes sense or not, if you know it's God's way, you know God's going to bring about some great results. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 5, we read the story where Jesus was just finished preaching the gospel and Peter had just finished uh, coming back from his fishing trip. And he was toiling and working all night and couldn't catch anything. Now, understand that Peter's profession was fishing. A very difficult job under very dangerous conditions. But he was a man who was experienced in his trade. He knew that when he went out to go fishing, he knew that the conditions were terrible sometimes. And he knew that there were times when he'd come back full of fish, and there were times when he'd come back with no fish. That's just the nature of the business. He was experienced and he knew that, and he knew what he was doing. So when he came back that night, he came back with no fish. That's not a knock on him, that's just the way things are. But as he was coming in, docked his boat, throw down the anchor, tied up his boat, and began to unload the net, when Jesus said to him in verse 4, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon responded by saying, Master, we worked hard all night. And we caught nothing. Now, Peter had a choice. Because he worked all night and because of, according to his profession and his experience, he caught nothing. It was a wasted day, a wasted night. So he could have said, Lord, there's nothing out there. We're tired. We'll go back in the morning and we'll do it again. But Peter, to his credit, says, but Lord, in spite of my experiences, in spite of my logic, in spite of my good common sense, at your word, I will go and cast down the nets. So even though his logic said there was no fish, 
even though his experience says there is no fish. Even though it, common sense tells him there is no fish and there's no sense in going back out there because I just come back, there's nothing out there. Jesus says, there is fish. And he went out, and you know the story. He went out and caught so much fish that his net began to break that he had to call help from others to, to come alongside and help him catch the fish because even the fish, what the, the fish that he had on the boat was causing the boat to sink because there was so much. Isn't it interesting that God would take something and turn it into, uh, God would take nothing and turn it into something? I'm amazed how moments before Peter came and docked the boat, there was nothing out there. But Jesus says, there's fish out there, go catch it. And he came back with a sufficient amount of fish. God can take our insufficiency and make it sufficient. Hallelujah. But see, if Peter said, you know what, Lord, with all due respect, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm an experienced fisherman. There's no fish out there. I can guarantee that there's no fish out there because I was there all night. I'll go back in the morning. Perhaps maybe there'll be some fish. But to his credit, regardless of whether it made any sense to him or not, regardless of common sense, I mean, he just threw common sense out the window because the Lord says there is fish. Well, Lord, if you say it's fish, then I'm going to go out there and catch some fish. Amen. And sure enough, there was fish. Now, let's go to, see another example. Go to Matthew chapter 14. This is a story where Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. So it's one of my favorite stories. There's just so much here. Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there and in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Verse 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now it was evening and the disciples came to him and said, Lord, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. And the disciples responded this way in verse 17. But all we have is five loaves and two fishes. Now, it's interesting what we see where the disciples thought that the best way was to send the people away. Let them go because it's getting late. Let them go to the nearest town. They can eat and, and, and get strengthened and, and get rest. Jesus' ways will say, no, let them stay. You feed them. Isn't it interesting that God will put demands on our faith? To do something that we may think is difficult, that we may think it's impossible, that we may seem to think that we just don't have sufficient or, 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 or have enough to work with. But you see, here's the wonderful thing. God's way is he doesn't depend on the circumstances. The circumstances doesn't control him. And he's not moved by the circumstances. God controls the circumstances. And so it didn't matter whether they had five loaves and two fishes or no loaves and two fishes. He says, you feed them. That's putting a demand on our faith. God will put a demand on your faith to cause you to stretch your faith, to get you to do something that he's willing to do through you. God wants to do the miraculous, but he, he needs a subject to work with. 
He needs instruments that he can work his magic, to work his miracle, to work his power. Uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't make any sense to the disciples. How are we going to feed thousands of people with just simple, with five simple loaves and two fishes? But that wasn't their problem. That was God's problem. God just simply says, you feed them. So they took what they had, gave it to Jesus. And the story goes on that Jesus took the bread, prayed, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And the disciples began to distribute. And as they were distributing, their insufficiency became sufficient. What little they had began to increase. And the story goes that everyone did eat and was filled, and they still had 12 baskets full of leftovers. They started with just an insufficient amount of bread and came back with a sufficient amount of bread and fish. That's just the way God works. That's just his way. When God is putting a demand on your faith, causing you to step out, just to stretch out your faith because God wants to build your faith and strengthen your faith in order to get to the next level. Because every level that we climb, there's a new challenge. You know the, the, the old saying, new level, new devil? But you can't get to the next level if your, strength is, if your faith is not strengthened. And so God, from time to time, will put demands on your faith because he wants to strengthen your faith. And when he puts a demand on your faith, he'll sometimes... He'll give you a huge test. The Bible says that the working uh, or the testing of our faith is far more precious than gold. And sometimes he'll give us an exam, a big exam, which means a big test. But for every big test, get ready for a big promotion. But the promotion is to get to the next level to face whatever challenges are there. But you can't promote you if you're not equipped or strengthened in your faith. There are too many of us who are stuck in the same level for years. And God is putting a demand on your faith, trying to get you to stretch your faith, trying to get you to exercise your faith. Oh yeah, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you hear the word of God all the time, but there are some of us who are still hearing and not doing. Who are hearing but not exercising. And the way to exercise your faith is when we're challenged, is when God puts demand on our faith, causing us to stretch our faith, build up our faith, so that we can be strengthened for the next challenge and for the next level. Read this story here. God did some wonderful things. God will put a demand on your faith. He'll take what's insufficient and increase it and make it sufficient. So when you give him your time, your talent, and your treasure, watch what God does with it. He'll take what little you have. If you're willing to step out in faith and trust God, watch what he does, and you'll get great results. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you, Father God, for speaking your word to us. We thank you, Father God, for ministering your word to each one of us. Father, I thank you that everyone has heard your word. I thank you, Father, that we've been challenged. I thank you, Father, that our faith has been encouraged. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing here tonight. And Father, we pray right now that the seed that has been planted in the heart will grow and develop and become a revelation knowledge to them. And Father, I thank you for building in them, Father God, a faith, Father God, to, to conquer, to, to overcome, and to succeed in life. Father, help us to trust your way and not ours. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, teach us your ways. 
Help us to understand your way. And help us to live according to your ways. Father, we want to succeed in life. But we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, we can do all things through Christ. So, Father, we thank you. And we give you all the glory and the praise, Father, for the work that's being done in us. Thank you for encouraging our faith tonight. In the name of Jesus.